Well, thank you all. Um, okay, I think it's a good enough time for us to jump in. Now, before we do so, it's always important to ask God to help us. And so we're going to ask God, God through the Holy Spirit, to shine his light upon this. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we need you right now. We need you right now, at this moment. Um, so much is going on around us, and there are people who have joined in on this broadcast whose minds are busy. There are people who have joined in on this broadcast who are going through different things in their lives. Um, the COVID-19 situation is still with us. Um, there's so much uncertainty still. There's a lot of suffering. And at this point, oh God, not only do we need you in our circumstances, we do need you to lift up our eyes to, to, to see um, from your perspective the things that you have always been doing because problems have always been with us. Difficulties have always been with us. But you tell us, oh God, that you are unchanging. Your plan is also unchanging. And so for us, oh God, to live a sane life, oh God, in a changing world, we need to be hooked up to you who is certain and never changing. And so as we want to open this, your unchanging word, this, your eternal word, we ask for the eternal spirit to come and be with us. Open our minds, open our hearts. Let there be transformation. Let there be renewing. Let there be enlightenment. We ask Holy Spirit, you who has breathed and inspired and authored this word, we pray that you will bring understanding of the word to our minds, to our hearts, so that we may see and glorify Jesus Christ um, through it all. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so, very quickly, what have we done so far? So far, what we've done in the last three is that we said, if you look at the Bible, for you to understand what the gospel is, it's important to understand what the gospel story is. The gospel is news, and news is a statement. There's a definition. It's a statement. But to understand what that news is, you need to look at the stories, because the story gives you meaning for what the news is. And so we looked at the gospel story, saying that you can see that the Bible is really divided into four big blocks. Creation, fall, new crea uh, creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. All right, creation for redemption and new creation. And it was in that context that we saw the storyline of the gospel. We saw the backstory, but we also saw where we were going. And then from there, we saw the definition of the gospel. What is the definition of the gospel? Well, first of all, we have said that the definition has a subject, a main subject, and that subject is Jesus Christ. The gospel is about Jesus Christ. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about anything that's going on in the world. It's about Jesus Christ. All right? And what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that the incarnate and crucified Savior, Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Messiah, is the good news that the incarnate and crucified Savior, Jesus the Messiah, is the resurrected Lord and impending judge of the world. Is the resurrected Lord and impending judge of the world. So that's the first thing we did. The second we did was, okay, if news has a subject, it also has objects. The, the one who, through whom the implication of the news comes to. And we said, look, for you to then get the benefits of the gospel, right, uh, you have to do certain things. Now, but the benefit of the gospel comes to us in three different phases, three different phases. So what do we have in the first phase? The first phase is these objects. How do they respond to the gospel? Through what you call repentance and faith. If you repent of your sins and put your trust in what Jesus Christ has done, in the gospel, you know what happens? You get a new status, a new identity. By the new status and new identity, we say 
something profound has happened to them without something happening in them. Something profound has happened to them. They have a new status, just like I am a Nigerian, right? Something has happened to them without something happening in them. So they have a new status. They are sons of God. They are just, they are righteous. They are uh, free. They are, um, uh, they are bought. Um, so they have all that. Now, in trans that's the first phase. In transiting to for between the first and second phase, you then receive, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you receive his Holy Spirit who gives you new life. So in the second phase, it's about growth in that new life. You see, you are regenerated. You are born again by the Holy Spirit. Because you are baptized in the Spirit, because you received the Spirit, he gave you new life. I haven't believed in Christ. So what is the second phase? So the first phase is the gospel status or gospel identity. What's the second phase? It's gospel life, living, growing um, in the character that the Spirit builds, um, using uh, the gifts that the Spirit gives. And how do you do that? You do that in the community that the Spirit has established, the church. So you are baptized uh, in the Spirit to be given to the church, and in the church you grow in character by using the gifts that he's given you, uh, you to serve uh, other people, by learning what God has taught, um, by fellowshipping with the Lord's people. And that's what growing is, right? Growing. We, we, we live a life of the Spirit. Paul in Galatians 5, 6 says that our faith that we have would be expressed in love. That's what gospel life is all about. And so that's what we've done so far. Now, I should ask, if ever you enter the car, right? I don't like going out, but sometimes I do. Whenever I enter a car, um, sometimes, I, you know, we do enjoy the ride. Here in Lagos, if you get on um, a place that is bomb-free, and maybe your car has air conditioning, and maybe it's a nice car, right? We do enter cars and we enjoy the journey, right? But the main reason we enter a car is not for the journey. The journey is the process that meets the real reason why we enter the car. We wanted to go somewhere. Where is this all going? There's a destination. And so, yes, the gospel phase, uh, the, the, the phase one, gospel status is important. And also, growing in life is also important the phase two. Gospel status and gospel life are important. But where is this all going? Well, that brings us to phase three. Phase three is what we call gospel hope. Now, I want to clarify something very quickly at the very beginning. Because in the ad that was promoting this, some of us didn't see it, but it was on Facebook. In the ad that was promoting this, I said something like, I don't believe that heaven is, going to heaven is the ultimate hope of a believer. Now, in the ad, I did say that I still believe Christians go to heaven. Why do I believe that? Because Paul says it in Philippians 1. He says in Philippians 1, verse 21, Paul himself says, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Why is dying gain? Verse 23, I am torn between the two. I desire to depart to be with Christ, which is by far better. So Paul spoke about departing to go and be with Christ. And by that, he meant going to heaven. So, of course, I believe Christians go to heaven. But I still stand by what I believe, and that's what this teaching is going to be about, because Paul shows us in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, that the ultimate hope of a believer is not dependent on where the believer is going, but it is dependent on where Christ is coming from. 
Notice what he says. For the grace of God has appeared that the, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Um, just skip from um, uh, verse 11 to verse 13. And he then says that, in verse 12, after saying that this grace teaches us something, in verse 13, then says, as he's teaching all of, all of this, while we wait for the blessed hope. So Christians have a blessed hope. And what did he tie that blessed hope to? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's really about Jesus Christ coming. Now if he's coming, is it, about to, is it so that he'll take us away? Well, we're going to see that. What is this hope of a believer? I think one way, and this is how we're going to look at it uh, today, one way we can look at it is for us to consider God's relationship, God's relationship with humanity within the context of something we all learned in primary school. What are they? Three things. Space, time, and matter. Space, time, and matter. We're going to consider God's relationship with humanity within the context of space, time, and matter. I'll, talk on, I'll, I'll elaborate on space and matter, and time I'll briefly touch on. Okay? So let us start. We're going to consider, we'll start with space. And for this, I'll, there'll be some diagrams for people who are watching on YouTube and Facebook. You'll be able to see the diagrams that would help us, aid us, um, as we go through it. But for those who are on Mixler, what you can do right now is to get that. There's a link. Um, there's a link uh, in your description box that would help you um, to, to follow on with us. So click that link and it should give you the slides of what we are going to be using. So let us begin. Now we're going to go, we're going to examine this issue of space as we go through the Bible. So let's start. You see, space is such an important part of the biblical story because God's people have always, always have had to dwell with God or have God dwell with them. So let's start from the beginning as we examine that, okay? So when God created the world, what did he do? He created the heavens and the earth. The heavens, as it were, is almost like separated them, and the heaven is where God dwells, and the earth is where the humans dwell. That's what we know. The man was created from the earth. But if you notice, and you see this in your diagram, God then planted a garden. And notice what he says about that garden. I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 2, 4, 8 to 10, and Genesis 3, 8 says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Verse 8. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. So notice, one, there's a garden. Second, the Lord God made all kinds of trees. Second thing, garden trees. And he made all kinds of trees grow out of the garden, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden, notice number three, were the tree of life, the tree of life, garden trees, tree of life, and the tree of knowledge and good of evil. And verse 10, notice number four, a river watering the garden flowed from Eden from where it was separated into the four headwaters. Because of time, I won't read verses 11 and 12, but the river goes through a place where there is gold, and that's really important. So a garden, trees, tree of life, a river, and there's gold. Five things. 
Now, this garden, is it just about having trees and having fruit and, you know, being a nice place? There's something you must notice about this garden. You see that in, Gal in Genesis 3 verse 8. It says, the man and his wife, so both of them were there, heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God came into the garden where the man and the woman that God had created were. In other words, this garden was a meeting space between the divine and the human. It was a meeting space between divinity and humanity. And it's described in the language of a garden because a garden is a nice place to chill, isn't it? A garden is a place where, in fact, many people who are recuperating, they tell them to spend time in a garden. A garden is a place for flourishing. That's what it was. But it's telling you that its flourishing was also tied to the fact that man and God could meet together. They could meet together in this meeting space because their relationship was intact. But their relationship did not remain intact. As we know in the story, the serpent came and he made them, he tempted them, and they fell um, by disobeying God's commandment. So what do you think? By doing that, their relationship was broken. How is that then going to be reflected in space? Before heaven and earth met, right, in the space of Eden. And that's where humanity and divinity could meet. But once they fell, what happened? That meeting space was no longer there for them to meet. Their broken relationship with God became reflected in the fact that there was now no meeting space between both of them. Verse 23 of chapter uh, 3 tells us that. Look at, so when, uh, so when the Lord God uh, banished them uh, from the Garden of Eden to, to work the ground from which he had been taken, after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. Notice it says the Lord God banished them. They were banished because the relationship was broken and that he drove them out and ensured that they could not come in. How? Because he put, notice, two cherubims. They were like kinds of angels and they were blocking the way of the tree of life. So in other words, their spheres were now separated, as you can see in the diagram that will show you. The two spheres were now separated, whereas before the two spheres had a meeting space. Why? Because there was a meeting relationship between both the divine and the human. All of a sudden now, they no longer have that. The man dwells in his meeting space, of, in his space of earth, and God dwells in heaven. Now that's such a tragic story. It's such a tragic story. But God, we find in the gospel, was not going to re allow things to remain that way. No. God's gospel plan was all about restoring relationship and therefore restoring the meeting place between him and humans until he, find a full, um, until he totally unites it. God's gospel plan was restoring the relationship and therefore restoring 
the meeting place until he fully united it. And so what do we find? How does that plan begin? Well, that plan begins with Israel. We know the story about how God called Abraham and God told Abraham that a nation will come from him and through which he would then lead to the Messiah. And so when God gets that nation out of Egypt, right, God gives them, he makes a covenant with them. And the, the, the book of that covenant is called the book of the law, the Torah. It's a book of covenant where um, God, speculate, uh, God stipulates the terms of the covenant and how they should relate with him. And in that Torah, in Exodus chapter 25, verse 89, you start to see the unfolding of this plan. God has delivered them from Egypt. God has just made a covenant with them. God delivered them from Egypt in Exodus 14. God brings them to Sinai and says certain things about them in Exodus 19, 20, 21. He gives them laws in 24, Exodus 24. God makes a covenant with them. By the time you get to Exodus 25, God says, having made the covenant with them, I'm going to do something that is very important. And he speaks to Moses and he says this in Exodus 24, verse uh, 5, verse 8 to 9. Then have them make a sanctuary for me. A sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. God said, make a sanctuary for me. A sacred space for me. Why? If you do that, I will be able to dwell among you. God is saying, these are my people, and how will they really be my people? Haven't made a covenant with them without me dwelling with them. But notice what it is. The sanctuary, therefore, becomes the meeting place, a meeting space where God can dwell with his people and he can meet with his people. In other words, the tabernacle that was stated to Moses was a meeting space between the divine and human. Now, but because the people that were under Moses were journeying through the uh, wilderness and going to a promised land, the meeting space, the tabernacle, had to be a mobile meeting space. It's like people who have, you know, mobile homes, caravans, and uh, what do you call those things? Porter cabins, right? The, the meeting place between the house of God um, and the meeting place between God and humanity, the tabernacle was a moving place. You could dismantle it, put it back together, and then reassemble it. But when they eventually get into the promised land and they start to have kings, the third king of Israel builds a permanent meeting place for God. Right? Solomon built a permanent meeting place. So the law gave us this meeting place. And what did Solomon call that permanent meeting place? It was called a temple. Let's, uh, let's just read 1 Kings 6, 23 and 29. And I want you to see whether some of the descriptions remind you of something. Verse 23. For the inner sanctuary he made, for the inner sanctuary, this is about the temple, he made a pair of what? Cherubim. Mm. Out of olive wood each 10 cubits high, verse 29. And on the walls around that temple, in both the inner and outer rooms, he carved, cherubims again, palm trees and open flowers. I don't need to, you know, I don't need to explain what that 
it's trying to show you. It's trying to show you that this inner sanctuary, because there, was, there were different sanctuaries. There was the outer court where some people were allowed. There was the holy place where a few, a few uh, sorry, yes, there was the outer court where uh, some people were allowed. There was a holy place where few people were allowed. And then there was the inner sanctuary where only one person was allowed on one day of the year. And in that inner sanctuary, you're seeing trees there. In fact, the whole thing was overlaid with gold. If you look at verse 20, overlaid with gold, you're seeing gold, you're seeing trees, and then you're seeing cherubims. What is it trying to tell you? That, that inner sanctuary, the inner, what is called the holy of holies, is where God dwells. It should remind you of where the Garden of Eden. God was saying, I'm restoring, I'm trying to restore my meeting space by restoring my relationship with my people. It's always God's plan to meet with the people that he created. You see, this, you remember when God told Moses in Exodus 25 that do it according to the pattern I showed you, the writer of Hebrews says a little bit even more about it. He says, do you know why God was telling him to make it according to the pattern? It's as, it's, it's a depiction of what was in heaven, the, the sanctuary in heaven, it's now meeting here on earth. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 to 2, 8, 1b to 2, and 4 to 5. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of God, or right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, and who serves in the inn, who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not mere human beings. A sanctuary in heaven. If he were here on earth, verse 4, he would not be a priest, for there are also priests who offer uh, gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy, and this is where I'm going, a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses, warned, uh, Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern I show you on the mountain. In other words, Moses was given a heavenly pattern. A heavenly pattern came down to earth. God revealed a heavenly pattern to Moses on earth. A heavenly pattern on earth. Why? So that heaven can meet earth. So that heaven can meet earth. That is so that the, the divine can meet with humanity. A heavenly pattern with earth. Heaven uniting with earth. This is why in Psalm 78, verse 69, when the psalmist is describing the inner sanctuary of the temple, you know what he says? It's remarkable what he says. He said, he built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he founded forever. I hope this is not confusing. There is God who created the divine, and the divine created humans, and he was having a relationship with them. And even though that relationship was broken, his plan for redemption was to restore it. When the relationship was good, there was a meeting space between both. When the relationship was shared, there was no meeting space between them. In his plan to bring about that meeting space, he says, Create for me a sanctuary. And the sanctuary reminds us of the first sanctuary that was there. And what was this sanctuary doing? It was the meeting place between God and his creation, the humans. Why? Because it also then led to, a, as it were, depicting a meeting of their two spheres. A meeting space where heaven and earth came 
together. And so, that is what we find in the Old Testament, that we see the loss of the divine human meeting space, but also the plan to restore that meeting space. It gives us the blueprint, the blueprint for that meeting space. I say it's the blueprint because truly, those, that tabernacle or the temple, where it, they, it ultimately wasn't the meeting space. I said, only one person could go into the inner sanctuary, the high priest, on one day of the year for all of the people. It was a blueprint. It wasn't the exact thing. Now, the fulfillment of it then comes in the New Testament, and it is revealed in the person of Jesus. The, the fulfillment of it comes in the person of Jesus. And you ask, how? Okay, let's go. In the book of John, John chapter 1 and John chapter 1, verse 1 and 114, tell us something absolutely remarkable. Look at John 1 and John 2. In John 1, how is Jesus described? It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So this Word has always been. Why? Because it was with God, but this Word was God. And I don't have to go into how we, we as Christians believe in one God, but multiple persons. So there's the Word, and there's God the Father. And we find out that there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Now, the Word, which is God the Son, God the Son, in verse 14 says, that word became flesh and did what? Dwell, made his dwelling among us. The Greek word there, when you look at the Hebrew word that is used, you can translate it to say, and he tabernacled among us. In other words, Jesus becomes the embodiment, the embodiment of the meeting space between the divine and the human. It says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. Jesus is, as it were saying, John is saying, Jesus is the fulfillment of that mobile tabernacle, that mobile temple. He uses the word tabernacle. Again, showing you that the plan has always been to dwell with his people. Or, you go immediately to chapter 2 of John, you say, well, are you sure, mobile tabernacle, I can't quite see it. Okay, look at John chapter 2. Jesus answered them. He was in dialogue with, his, uh, with some people here. He said he was looking at a temple that was built for 47, uh, 43 or 47 years. And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, this temple that they were looking at, and I will raise it in three days. And they thought, how is that possible? This thing that cost us 47 years to build, was, I'm not really talking about that. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of the temple. And why can we say he's the fulfillment of the temple? Because the temple was the uniting space between God and humanity, and Jesus was the God-man, God who became a human. This is why 1 Timothy 2 tells us that there is, only, there is one mediator between God and humanity, the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus himself becomes the meeting space. Jesus, as the God-man, becomes the meeting space between humanity and divinity. This is why Jesus is the ultimate restoration plan for the relationship of God and humanity. Notice, though, it's the direction of trying to solve this problem. 
It wasn't humanity going up. It was what? God coming down. The direction of redemption has always been from up all the way down. We'll see that more as we go. God came down. Now, then you move forward. What happens? Jesus is about to leave. We go to John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16. He said, I'm going to leave. But when I leave, don't worry. As I go up, because God always has to come down, another like me is going to come. He said, I will send you the Holy Spirit. So we have God the Father, God the Son. God the Son has come down. God the Son is going back up to heaven. But the plan hasn't stopped. Why? Because God the Holy Spirit is now coming. And that God the Holy Spirit dwelling among us, uh, God the Holy Spirit coming to be with us, how is that described? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Look at it. It says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, that is, non-Jewish people who have believed in Christ, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. So now he's describing the church, God's people. People who have believed in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. But no, he's talking of a building. He's saying Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. He's talking about foundation of the apostles and the prophets. This is building language. He's talking about a building. And so verse 21 then says, In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become what? A holy temple. Now, it's not Jesus the man, the temple, but he's saying Jesus as revealed in his people. Christ the head and then the people, the body. He calls it a temple. And what do he say? And in him, you two are being built together to become what? A dwelling in which God lives by who? His spirit. Ah, all of a sudden, the church itself, because of the Holy Spirit dwelling in the church, becomes that temple. You see, the church is not just an ordinary place. The church becomes the meeting place between the divine and humans. Why? Because God is already dwelling there. This is, remember, phase two, uh, phase two is how we grow in the life of the Spirit because we receive the Spirit in phase one. The Holy Spirit coming is actually showing us that now we receive the life and the transformation of God. Why? Because God is with us. If Jesus Christ is God with us, Emmanuel, the Holy Spirit is God in us and among us. And the church becomes that temple. But you see the plan again. It is about God dwelling with his people. When the relationship is restored, the meeting space comes to intersect. But we're going through that now. And somebody then asks, so what does that have to do with the gospel hope? Everything. Now, maybe I can put it this way. We don't really do this now much. But there was something called espousal. Like if there was a guy and there's a lady. Well, we do it. It's called engagement. A guy and a girl. They've been dating for a while. They decide to get married. And now they're in a period where they are moving towards marriage. It's official. You know, they've sent out IVs, they've chosen a date, we know they're going to get married. Now, notice they're not yet married. That is the period of engagement. They are engaged. And when they have come to the end of the engagement, they get married. Now, if you follow the Christian uh, norms, 
what happens is on the after they've gotten married, the you know there's a the legal pronouncement of being married, but then to complete it, we use this word they consummate the marriage by making love with one another. We use this word consummation. It's a completion. They were engaged, had not yet consummated. The engagement showed that there was a union, but the union was completed in their consummation when they were married. In various places in the Bible, we are described as in that engaging phase. The church is described as in, in that engaging phase. So for instance, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says that Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he may cleanse her with the washing of water by the word and present her unto himself a glorious bride. In other words, she is being prepared as a bride. She is not yet, we are not yet married. The church is not yet married. We are in the place of engagement. Or in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2, Paul says that I have espoused you. Right? I have, I don't know what the NIV, how the NIV puts it. But I have, I have put you, I have made you engaged. I've espoused you unto one husband. So we've not quite yet gotten there. We're going there. Or Revelation chapter 19, at the end of time, he says, we are moving towards the marriage supper of the Lamb. And verse 7, he said, his bride has made herself ready. There is a marriage ceremony. So we are engaged with Christ. We have his ring. His ring is really the Holy Spirit. Right? We've received a seal. But we have not yet consummated the marriage. And so while the law gave us the blueprint through the temple, and the gospel now gives us, first of all, the incarnation of Jesus Christ as the meeting space, and then as we apprehend the gospel and we receive the Holy Spirit, the church is the meeting space, we are still waiting for the consummation. And what is this consummation? Well, we must go to the end of the Bible. And you see the meeting space come together. And you see all the themes of things we've spoken about in the book of Revelation. Let's go to Revelation chapter 21. Don't forget, where did we start? We started with a creation. In the very beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Genesis 2, we said, this is the account. Genesis 2 verse 4. This is the account of how God created the heavens and the earth. And he moved you towards a garden. Now, in Revelation 21, John opens with these Profound words. Listen to what he says. We're going to read Revelation 21. Oh, I should have said this beforehand. That, that don't forget that the, the, the direction has always been God coming down to us, not us going down up to God. That's why in Romans chapter 10, Paul, quoting Moses from, I think, Deuteronomy 8, says, but the righteousness that is of faith does not say, uh, the, righteous, uh, uh, the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend up to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend to the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Salvation, redemption has never been about our own motion towards God. It's always been about God's motion towards us. Revealed in the law. Revealed in the person of Christ. Revealed in the Holy Spirit. So that by the time you get to the consummation, what do you expect at the end of all things? Revelation 21, 1 to 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. What does that mean? It's telling you that a new creation has started. When you saw the old heaven, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. What did you see? The creation of the cosmos. 
It's saying that this is leading us to a brand new cosmos. Is that for the first one, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was now no longer any sea. All right. So we have the language of space given to us in creation. He's going to describe it in another way. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. And guess what? We were going towards the new Jerusalem, wasn't it? Is that what he says? The holy, the holy Jerusalem, which we were going towards. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down, coming down. Because if it's about salvation, if it's about the gospel, it always comes down to us. Coming down from, oh, out of where? Heaven from God. Now we go into heaven. Prepared as a bride. Consummation. Beautifully dressed for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling is now, the dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. You've seen that language before, but now it's not just embodied in a person or in our hearts. Don't forget, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. But he went and then sent God in us. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ in us. But don't forget that the Spirit of Christ in us is not yet the glory. What? Christ in you is what? The hope of glory. But we with Christ is the glory. God in us is the hope of glory. But we with God is the glory. And so what are you looking out for? What is our hope in terms of the meeting space? It is not we going to heaven in that place. It's not we escaping the world. It is God transforming the world. This world that comes with natural disasters. This world that there is a lot of waste. So much, so many problems in this world. God is saying, I'm going to make this whole world brand new. You messed it up by the, by, by, by the fall, but I'm going to transform it. There is going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And if we, in terms of speaking, you will be speaking of space. In terms of speaking of time, this is for all time, eternal time. Now, he describes this further in chapter 21 and chapter 22 in ways we will understand. First of all, if you go to verse, 20, uh, verse 16 of chapter 21, because he's going to describe it for us as the consummated inner sanctuary and the consummated garden. Consummated inner sanctuary that we know and the consummated garden. Again, just different ways of speaking about the final meeting place, the final meeting space, the final united space between the divine and the human, between heaven and earth. Heaven and earth that were separated will now come together. How do we know this? Look at verse 16 of chapter 21. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. Okay? So like a square, long and wide. So it's just giving the length and the breadth. That's equal. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and as high as it is long. In other words, it's not just a square. It's a cube. The same length. Uh, the length is the same as the width, and the width is as, uh, um, uh, the same as the length. I'm uh, sorry. The, length, uh, the width is the same as the length, and the height is, as same, uh, is the same as the length. 12,000 stadia in length, and as wide, and as high 
as it is long. And then if you actually measure 12,000 states, like it, it, this thing, if you try to do it literally, it will make no sense because of the length. It will make no sense. And don't forget that Revelation is always giving you symbolic language. He's not trying to tell you how to measure what the new city will look like. He's giving you a description of the new city. The new city is the new earth. But what is it saying profoundly in this verse about the new city? It is measured as a cube. Same length, same height, and same width. Is there anywhere in the Bible where something is described as a cube? Yes, thank you for asking. There's only one place in the Bible where we see something, the measurement of a cube. It is in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 19 to 20, where it is describing Solomon's temple. Please let us open there. He says this in verse 19. He prepared the inner sanctuary. We are talking about the inner place where God's Shekinah glory, where the ark is, where the cherubims are, you know. He prepared the inner sanctuary within the temple to set the ark of the covenant of the Lord there. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 wide, 20 high. He overlaid the inside with pure gold, and he also overlaid the altar of cedar. The inner sanctuary was of a cube measurement. Now, when he's saying it is so much larger, 12,000 by 12,000, no longer just 20 cubits by 20, he's saying this is what is going to happen. The whole, the entire new world is going to be like the new sanctuary. It's not now that it's just a small parcel in Eden where there's the sphere of humanity and there's the sphere of divinity. It's saying that humanity space and divinity space will be collapsed into one. And it will just be like the inner sanctuary where man and God are dwelling together forever. Is this understood? In other words, our hope is this meeting space coming together. Let me move forward. Because then in Revelation 22, verses 1 to 4, it further elaborates this, but it's not talking about this over... And don't forget that it says the streets are of gold, the whole uh, city is made of gold, because the inner sanctuary in the Old Testament was also all made of gold. But now in 22, this same holy city is not going to be described as an urban place, uh, space. It's going to be described as what? A garden. Look at it in Revelation 22. Still describing the same reality. Because Revelation 21 verse 1 goes to Revelation 22 verse 5. The same reality. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Remember? In the Garden of Eden there was a water, a river, that then had four, four heads. Now it tells you that river is a river of water of life. Jesus Christ said, come to me. To call uh, all those who drink from me out to, as the scripture said, out of a place shall flow rivers of living water. He told the woman at the well, I have water to drink that if you drink of it, you will never thirst again. Now that river of life is flowing forth. Class, Christian, where is it flowing from? From the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street, it's flowing down the middle of the great street of the city, so the garden city. On each side of the river stood what? The tree of life. Bearing 12 crops, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, right? Notice, and then it says, no longer will there be any curse. Where man fell, God cursed the ground that he worked on. The throne of God and of the Lamb are in that city, and his servant will serve him. Notice, you see the tree of life there? You see the river that is there. But notice what is in there. 
There is no tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is, the thing that brings about the fall is no longer going to be there. This is a perfect place. Notice, there is no longer any curse. For those that are able to work within this flourishing environment, just like where Adam, when Adam was working in the garden, it's now no longer any curse. And notice again what is in there. There are no cherubims there blocking the way. But also in verse 4, you see the ultimate hope of any Christian. You see, at all times, they said, why did Jesus Christ incarnate and become a human being? Jesus Christ incarnated and become a human being. John said, we have seen his glory, the glory of, as of the only begotten. Why? Because God told Moses that no one can see me and live. No human being. Even Moses could not see God. God passed with his back part. We can't see God and live. But it says here in verse 4, they will see his face. There is no other part of scripture that ultimately brings all our longings together. Your longings as expressed through sex, your long, that, that ultimately the longings are never fully satisfied. That is expressed through hunger, that is expressed through our ambitions, all of those things that make our adrenaline rush. And after a period of time, eventually we need another boost. There is no pleasure that will not ultimately be fulfilled when the time comes where he says we will see his face. This is what all our longings is looking for, forward to. And his name will be on their forehead. So you see, ultimately our hope is not to go. Our hope is for God to come. It's for space to be united. The Bible doesn't promise, doesn't say, oh, the best thing of Christians to look forward to is to go to heaven. No. It's that heaven will come down to the earth. Our meeting space will be like the sanctuary. But how will we see God's face though? You see, I can understand that the whole meeting space is going to be totally transformed. And that that would happen for all eternity. But in the state that we're in, are we going to be able to see God's face? That can only happen if something happens to us, something that is utterly transformative. And that leads me to now talk quickly about matter. Matter. We've spoken about space, we've spoken about time. But what about matter? You see, because while the issue of, um, of space is all about motion, the motion of redemption, the issue of matter is about the translation of redemption, the translation from one state to another. Let me explain. Let's move on quickly. You see, in Philippians 1, 2, uh, 21 to 24, we've already quoted a little bit of it. Paul gives us two conditions of humanity, right? Paul says that, in, uh, I'm not going to quote everything, but he says, if I am to go on living in the body, he says there's, a thing, there's such a thing as living in the body, but there's also the one of departing. You see, it's necessary, more necessary for me in verse 24 that I remain in the body. So if he departs, he will no longer be in the body. If he's still on earth, he will be in the body. In other words, if he's alive as we know being alive is, he will be in his body. But if he departs, he will no longer be in the body. Those are two conditions. In other words, he's giving us the embodied state and the disembodied state. Now Paul says... 
for him as a believer, as a Christian, the disembodied state is better because he will go and be with Christ, right? Because it says to die is gain. To die is gain. And verse 23, I'm torn between the two. I desire to go and depart and be with Christ. It's more gain. He's saying any Christian that dies and goes to be in heaven, you know the problem when somebody that's close to us as a Christian, that, 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 when that person dies, the real problem is not for the person. <laughs> the person is, to die is gain. The problem is for us that will be missing that person. So Paul says there's an, a body state and a disembodied state. And somebody then says, hey, now that's what I'm saying. That going to heaven, the disembodied state is better. It's better. Yes, it's better than the embodied state, but it is not the ultimate hope. You know why? That same Philippians, that same book of Philippians, follow it. In chapter 3, Paul tells you that our hope isn't tied to becoming disembodied spirits. I hear this all the time. Many people say, as a Christian, you are, we are not ordinary human beings. We are spirits. Eh? I get the sentiment. But the Bible was never, the redemption of the gospel was not to move us from human beings to becoming spirits. The redemption that the Bible gives was to move us from being fallen humans to being glorious human beings. And I'll prove that to you because when we talk about being spirits, we're saying that the ideal, the real thing that is in us is the spirit. That is the main thing. And so maybe by the time we go to heaven and we shed off this body, that's it, we'll be in our ultimate state. No, sir. No, ma. Because Paul tells us, even though to go and be with the Lord, disembodied is, far, is better than being here in this fallen human body, when Jesus returns, the ultimate hope, as he shows us in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 to 21, you will start to see what he wants to do. Look at it in verse, uh, Philippians 3, 20 to 21. It says, our citizenship is in heaven. And you say, hey, is that where we're going? No, keep reading. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await our Savior from there. Remember, motion coming down. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that is when he's returning, he's going to exert a certain power. By the power that enables him to bring all things under his control, that is, as he is Lord of the world, by that power that enables him to move the world towards the history that he has determined, by that same power, what will he do? He will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Our ultimate hope, when we talk about our state, we've spoken about meeting space, but when you talk about matter, matter here, our ultimate hope is not to shed this body to now escape so that the real us, the spirit comes alive. No, our ultimate hope is to exchange this body, lowly bodies, he describes that, for a glorious body. It turns out that matter is a serious matter. It turns out that matter matters to God. Our bodies. Why are you baptized? We are baptized so that we can experience in some sense or signify salvation on our bodies. We can feel it. It's a way of God owning our bodies. Or why do you depict the gospel through something we can eat? Because matter is a serious matter. Matter matters to God. 
Actually, what's what's Paul talking about this exchange in glory? But he says it. He says it's, it's such a short. Uh, uh, it's such a short form. For me, maybe I, I, you know. Some, sometimes we can misinterpret one verse, and uh, he may. He seems to be saying something else. And um, don't don't mis, don't misquote just one verse or two verses. I agree. So let's go to one Corinthians fifteen when Paul dedicates a whole fifty-eight verses on this particular topic. I'm not going to go through the 58 verses, but we're going to go through the latter verses. You see, because Paul is saying, why do we need, why do we need a translation in our humanity? Why do we need it? It's very simple. Remember we talked about meeting space. And that meeting space, that new heaven and new earth, sometimes also de depicted as, or called here, as the kingdom, the consummated kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has started because Christ is on the throne. But the kingdom of God has not been consummated. Why? Because not everything is under the foot of Christ. When he says that he exerts his power to bring everything under his control, from the time he ascended to the throne, what he's doing is that he's moving everything to be under his control. Do you understand? When everything becomes under his control, that happens when he returns and consummates his kingdom. Now, that kingdom of God that has started but is, has been uh, inaugurated but is yet to be consummated, that kingdom of God, he says, we cannot inherit it in our current state. That is the reason why we must be changed in our humanity. 1, 1, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Listen to what it says. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood, a way of depicting the humanity, uh, the, 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 the body that we have now, flesh and blood, this current state cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Why? nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. It is not possible for a decaying perishable body to inherit an everlasting and imperishable world. And so there must be not a motion towards heaven, but a translation of our humanity. The motion comes from heaven down. But there must be a translation of our humanity. And if you read verse 51 to 52, which we'll do now, what it shows you is that there are two states of people. That translation takes a, a two processes. One is for the dead, and one is for those who are alive and remain when Christ returns. When Christ returns, there will be a lot, most of the Christians will have been dead. But there will be some people that will be alive and remain. Those who are dead will be resurrected, and those who are alive and remain will be changed into this new state. The state of translation is you either go through it through a resurrection or through a change. Look at it in verse 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. That is, we will not all die, but we will be changed. The ones who will not die will be changed in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For when the last trumpet will sound, what will happen? Depending on whether you are dead or whether you are alive, when the, uh, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be what? Raised imperishable and we will be changed. That is, if we are alive, at, and this is the parallel to this is 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 13 to 18 or 19, 18, right? That we will not, we who are alive and remain will not proceed to enter into the resurrected state before those who have fallen asleep. So don't grieve for them as, as people that don't have hope. When the last trumpet shall sound and Christ shall return, what is going to happen? There will be a translation of our humanity. 
And that comes with the changing of our bodies. Why? Because, don't forget, we have already received a new status. We have already received adoption by faith. And now, we have received the adoption, we have also received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And we are growing, by receiving that spirit, we are growing in our sonship. Phase one, receive the adoption as a status. Phase two, having received the spirit of adoption, we are growing as adopted sons. What is phase three, Romans 8? The adoption of the redemption of our bodies. You see, these bodies will be different. That's what verses 42 to 43 and 53 to 54 tell us. Four differences that you see in this body, right? In verses 42 to 43, 53 to 54, he says, So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, but it is raised imperishable. That is, you will receive a... Are you tired of sickness? I am. I am tired of sickness. I'm not, I'm not saying God doesn't heal. God heals. God heals. God has healed me. But he doesn't always heal. If, they, if he healed everything, nobody, we will not still be going to hospital. There will be no need for hospitals. They are saying that there is going to come a time when all hospitals will be closed. Because there will be no healing. Perishable. We will put out the perishable for the imperishable. No decaying. No aging and the effects that come with it. There's another one he says. He says also that it is sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. Some of you, I, I don't believe God ever created an ugly person, but you think you're not that fine. You think you're not that glorious. You're not that attractive. Well, all your dishonor, or maybe you've had an accident, and you could only try to repair by plastic surgery. Maybe there is something dishonorable you think about your body. Everything, that which has been sown in dishonor, will be raised in glory. But he also says this, that it is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. Sometimes after having a long day, you need to recuperate because the body is now weak. Sometimes we're just so tired, but now we'll be extremely, it's all power. And then if we go to verse 53, it says, For the perishable must go itself with imperishable, and the mortal with what? immortality. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says that that which is mortal will be swallowed up by eternal life. Now, when it says that we will put on the immortal, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Do you know what Jesus Christ is doing as he is reigning now? When he says that not all his enemies have been put under his footstool, as he's exerting his power, do you know what he's going to do? He's going to bring all his enemies under his footstool. But the final enemy that shall be put under his footstool, when he returns, is called what? Death. There will be no more death. There will be no more crying, no more, no more pain, no more sorrow. As he says in Revelation chapter 21. Why? Because nobody will die again. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more loss. Because of the resurrection. Death will be swallowed up in victory. This is a hope to look forward to. Not that we will escape these bodies and will escape this world, but that God will give us new bodies. Oh, I should say a little bit more about that. Because what is happening is he's showing you, he's bringing the reality of the creation and humanity. You see, when God made the first creation, the old creation that in Revelation 21 says will pass away. Notice, he created, 
the cosmos first, and from the earth of the cosmos, he created a human being. That was what we call the natural body. Verse 44, it's only a natural body, it's really a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first Adam became a living being. In verse 47, it says, the first man was of the dust of the earth. He created the, the cosmos, and from the dust of the earth, breath of life came, and he became a living being. Old cosmos, first heaven and the earth, first man. And every person after that was created in the order of that man. Not that we became replicas of Adam. It's that the humanity of Adam is what we inherited. Whilst we keep our personal, dis uh, personal distinction, the human race is after the order of Adam. But Adam fell. And when Adam fell, that humanity started to decay. Death came. And so everybody that's come after Adam has gone in the way of Adam. We are all dying, no matter the advance in our science. We are all the children of Adam. And Adam was created for another world. But it was because Adam broke his relationship with God that both Adam and the world was condemned. So how does God redeem it? He brings another Adam. And this Adam, first of all, is God incarnate in the image of Adam. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Not that Jesus Christ sinned, but that he inherited the body that had the effect of sin. God sent his likeness of sinful flesh in the fullness of time. But the new Adam, the last man, was recreated. Jesus Christ died, and when Jesus Christ died, the order of Adam was dying. He condemned sin in the flesh. And, but when he was raised up, if Adam was the firstborn of the first creation, Jesus Christ became the firstborn of the new creation. How? Adam was raised up to life from the dust of the earth by receiving the breath of God. But Jesus Christ was raised back or raised forth into eternal life by the Spirit of God that raised him from the dead. Romans chapter 8 verse 11 says that very clearly. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. It is the spirit that raised him from the dead that will give you a new body. There was that natural body, but the spiritual body is a Holy Spirit formed body. That is why the Holy Spirit is given to us as a guarantee of what is to come. The Holy Spirit is given to us as a seal of God. He's, a, he's the ring of God upon our fingers. But he's also saying, as you have received the Spirit, the work of the Spirit is not done. The work of the Spirit is going to be done when he gives you a new body, just as he did for Jesus Christ. If the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, he will also give life to your mortal body. And you will be after this new creation this new man that is why jesus in revelation chapter uh, revelation chapter 1 verse 5 but also in colossians chapter 1 i think verse 18 19 20 i'm not sure but in revelation 1 5 he says and from jesus christ who jesus christ who is the faithful witness the firstborn from where from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So you can now understand in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, when he says, it is soon a natural body, but it's raised up a spiritual body, spirit by the Holy Spirit. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man 
became a living being, but the last Adam, the first man Adam, became a living being, one Adam, but the last, because there is no other kind of humanity after this last Adam's own. He became what? A life-giving spirit. I give unto you eternal life, abundant life. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. Adam came first, and then after the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, but the second man came from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those of the earth. We, that was what we first experienced. As is the heavenly man, so are also those who are of, the he of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so we will bear the image of the heavenly man. Bearing the image of the heavenly man first starts with Faith. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Why? By faith. We are united with Christ, but also we are united with Christ by the Holy Spirit that gives life. And then we are being conformed by that same Holy Spirit. For we are being changed from one image of glory unto another until we reach the full glorification, where we will receive a new body, where we will truly bear the image of the heavenly man by receiving a body like his. You see it come together. Now, there are scriptures. I can't go through it because of time, but if you read Revelation 8, 8, 8 really read Revelation 18, Revelation 8, verse 18 to 25. We put some here, you know, but I don't want to go through it, but it shows you how that, you see, it said the manifestation, the, 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 the creation, the creation is waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. That is the creation who was brought to decay because of the disobedience of humanity, that creation would also partake in the liberation of the children of God. And what is that liberation of children of God? We who have, first, who have received the first fruit of the Spirit, we who have been baptized with the Spirit, we are still eagerly awaiting, Paul says. What are we eagerly awaiting? What are we groaning for? We are waiting for the adoption of our, the redemption of our bodies. Our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. And Paul then says, this is the hope we were saved to. So you see what happened? Paul says, I tie the fall of humanity to the decaying of the creation. But when humanity had been restored fully in redemption, then the creation itself will be totally free. Do you see it? The resurrection and new creation coming together. He said, so what is heaven in all of this? What is heaven going to heaven in all of this? It, it reminds me of, you see, it's going on to 20 years now. When I first, I was trying to embark on uh, uh, to my first professional job, right? I was going to get it during my industrial attachment. And I had been given a letter um, uh, by someone who knew someone in Nigeria. Someone who knew someone. I gave me a letter to the MD of this telecoms company, a very nice plus telecoms company. So I go there, I'm a bit confident. They send the letter to the MD. Then all of a sudden, I'm taken to this place. I'm not taken to his office. I'm taken to the waiting room before his office. And that waiting room was nice. Though. It was nice. I liked it. You know, nice coffee table. I don't think they gave me anything to drink. You know, I was an IT boy now, coming from school. But it was a nice place. They had nice magazines. The setting was so nice. That waiting place was really good. I started reading some of the magazines. I started dreaming. Like, man, what would it be to work in a place like this? But not only what would it be to work in a place like this, maybe me too, I can have my own thing. But I was really, I was really thinking about, I would love to work in this place. 
So I was in the waiting room. And as nice as the waiting room was, I didn't go there to go and stay in the waiting room. I went there to go and see the MD. The ultimate thing I wanted was to go and see the MD and to be given a job. Guess what? I entered his, his office. His office was even better than the waiting room. And I was given the job. That is exactly what heaven is. Heaven is the most glorious and the most majestic waiting room. Heaven, that disembodied state, shows that we are waiting for something. Read 2 Corinthians, 1 verse, uh, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 1 to 5. We are waiting to be clothed, not to be unclothed. As, as when we are disembodied, we have not reached our state. We are waiting. Paul says, also, we who have the first fruit of the Spirit are waiting. Now, in heaven, there is a, glor it's a glorious waiting room. But it is a waiting room. It's a place to wait because of what is coming after, because of where you are going. And so, in heaven, you will be waiting to be united with your spiritual body, but you will also be waiting for the space where heaven and earth meet together. So when somebody asks you, like you listening now, why, what is the hope of a believer? If you don't want to go through all of this and everything, just tell them exactly what Peter was anticipating, what Paul was anticipating. What did Paul and Peter say that the scriptures had promised about our to our, the, the, the hope, our gospel hope. What did Paul and Peter say? Did they say, well, the, go the gospel hope is for us to escape this place, to escape this body, and to escape this world? No. Just quote Acts 24, verse 15, and 2 Peter 3, verse 13 for them. Acts 24, verse 15, where Paul speaks, and what, two Pe and what Peter says in 2 Peter 3, verse 13. Paul says, I have the same hope in God. What is that hope? as these men have themselves, that there will be a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. And of course, the resurrection of the righteous is what we've been talking about. There will be a resurrection. Paul says, that is the hope I have. That is the hope that these, these Pharisees, as, as they look at the Old Testament scriptures, that is the hope that they are looking forward to. You can read Daniel 12, verse 2. That there will be a resurrection. That's what Paul says. And Peter adds, Paul talks about the matter, then Peter adds the space in 2 Peter 3 verse 13. But in keeping with his promise, as promised throughout the scriptures, in keeping with his promise, we haven't yet received it, but we are looking forward to what? A new heaven and a new earth where righteousness, where justice dwells. What is the hope of a believer? It is resurrected existence and eternal dwelling with God in the new heavens and the new earth. Resurrected existence and eternal dwelling. Resurrected existence, matter. And eternal time dwelling with God relationship in the new heavens and the new earth space. I'll say it one more time. What is the gospel hope? What has always been promised, what you can be looking forward to, it is resurrected existence and eternal dwelling with God in the new heavens and the new earth. I hope you are looking forward to this. I hope you are looking forward to this.
It shows us that God cares about our bodies. It shows us that God cares about this world. He cares about this world. I hope you can look forward to a time where there is no war. I hope you can look forward to a time where there is no sickness. I, look, I hope you can look forward to a time where there is no sin, no tears, no death. For that is what, and no less than that, what the gospel promises. This is why in our definition of the gospel, the final part tells us that Christ is an impending judge. What's the gospel? The good news that the incarnate and crucified Savior, Jesus the Messiah, is the resurrected Lord and what? Impending judge of the world. For when he comes to judge the living and the dead, he will put all things to right. The meeting space will come together and our resurrected existence will be with us. Let us pray.